Business Class is brought to you by the Tourism Academy, harnessing the power of science, business psychology, and adult education to advance the tourism industry and build sustainable economies. Learn how to engage your community, win over stakeholders, and get more visitors at tourismacademy.org. My name is Steve Ekstrom, and I'm the host of the new podcast series, Business Class, a travel industry podcast from the Tourism Academy. After more than 20 years working in the travel industry, I sold everything to become a full-time tourist. And this time, I'm with Shannon Scott, expert storyteller in Savannah, Georgia, a charming southern escape where art, period architecture, trendy boutiques, and ghost stories are all set under a veil of Spanish moss. First thing I noticed when I walked in, yeah. there is an eclectic collection of stuff around here. Yeah, it's definitely the storyteller's um, domain. <laughs> like every object has some connection to my whole life of really 32 years in Savannah and also all the stories that are regularly shared. So this is like a little mini museum almost. What is the most unexpected item that one would find in this room or in your You mean like, just like that strikes you right away or that's maybe hidden in here? Hidden in here or, or one that most people wouldn't expect to find in someone's home? Uh, probably the odd fellows ritual casket behind me. Uh, it's 1857 and it was used by the fraternal order of the odd fellows in Illinois, which is where that came from. Um, and, they have a lot of meditation ceremonies around death and reflections on death. So, and they also teach their uh, fraternal order brothers how to funeralize bodies. So, all of that would have been used in the training. Okay. And it, they're very rare, exceptionally rare. And what's interesting is that Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass visited the lodge that was in when it was in that lodge. Huh. When they were d- doing their debates in Illinois. Very interesting. Yeah. So- um, you said you've been in Savannah for 32 years? Basically, yeah. From where? Illinois. From Illinois. Yeah. And what brought you to Savannah? Well, I received a scholarship to go to the art school here, the Savannah College of Art and Design. That was the initial excuse to get here. But I really fell in love with the whole low country vibe. And I was just smitten. You know, I thought, okay, this is where an artist should be. And that, that really started the journey. And it overtook my interest in the school, to be honest. I left SCAD and just got into all this around me, basically. So, art. What do you consider your art now? Storytelling. Yeah? Yeah, I call myself a storyist, which is sort of my word that I coined. Um, it's like the blend of, or my word for a historian and a, a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's really it. I like to bring the history and the dates and things like that to the crowds, but also like the essence of the, the people and the, the events. So that's the storytelling part. What makes a good storyteller? I think, well, I mean, A, to hold people's attention, and then also to speak to them about something that they've never been introduced to before uh, and sort of wow them, if you will. Um, but also to, I think, translate and relate uh, the essence of maybe the the subject matter well, you know, like they feel what you're saying. And even if they are, they didn't expect to be interested in it, you've made them interested in it. And, and therefore it's like infected them in some way, you know, you kind of open a new horizon. So, I mean, that's a lot, but I mean, I think that's really at core what a good storyteller is doing. 
and you've made a business out of this. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that? <laughs> uh, Throw in a plug. <laughs> well, you know, the, the short story of the long is that I really was passionate about this place from a selfish standpoint of I loved all these subjects and I wanted them to, I wanted the hearts and minds of others to experience them in the way that I was excited about them. So at a selfish level, you know, as you build your, your dream or whatever, that's kind of what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it's like, um, it, you know, Savannah's a small city. So if you don't have a, a definitive degree of some kind, you know, you're forced to look at certain options and then entrepreneurial options, I suppose. Um, so I just, you know, I found my way into this and, and built a business out of it. And it took a long time. <laughs> I can understand that. Um, what was that sort of aha moment when you realized that the business would be feasible? Hmm. You mean as I was doing it or, or as I started it? As you were doing it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's like this. I was working for someone else and I saw the money they were taking in every day. And I knew when they didn't want to offer me any other kind of in, involvement with their business, like a manager or something like that. I was like, okay, I need to change this up for myself. And I have the ability and the talent now, the knowledge to do that. So that was a part of it. You know, how can I make a greater living out of this? And I think um, also realizing that I had accumulated a fan base over a long period of time and got a lot of repeat customers. So once you start to see that impacting your life, like, people traveling from afar just to come hang out with you again, you're like, okay, you know, like, um, that's, there's something meaningful there. What do you look for when you travel? Or do you travel? I, I do. Um, I, I'm, I'm an off the beaten path type person. So I'm very, um, winging it, you know, I mean, it's it's really I do I'm not I'm not drawn to to big things that crowds are drawn to. Um, I shy away from those almost like intentionally. I like to find my own way through the crowd and find something that speaks to me a little more personally. So I'm not you know again I'm not trying to go to some giant aquarium because all these people go to a giant aquarium. Um, it's more like you know. Oh, that looks interesting. I'm going to go down that road, you know, and I'm really, so in that sense, I'm easily satisfied. You know, it's just, you know, if I can find an old building and a historical marker, you know, I'm a happy camper. It's funny. I, I think that's something we have in common mm -hmm. is that I'm, I tell people that particularly in restaurants, I'm either going to be the easiest or most difficult customer you have all day mm -hmm. because I'm probably only going to eat here once. You send me the best food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I don't even care. Yeah, sure. Just surprise me. That's either going to make me difficult or really easy. Yeah. Difficult because you can't make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> or easy because you can. And I think that when you allow yourself the flexibility to try new things, mm -hmm. you end up having better experiences or more experience or more fulfilling experiences. Sure, sure. Well, I'm very uh, what I would call off menu, you know, at a restaurant. You know, I like doing the chef's menu thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like, hey, the menu looks great, but, you know, surprised me in a little bit, so. Yeah. Um, what's been your best travel experience so far? 
Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that is really hard to uh, quantify. I think it's because I like to give credit to so many different places and uh, different experiences. I mean, you know, honestly, and it's been some years, but um, I love traveling to Spain. Um, I kind of call Spain my spiritual homeland. Um, I just really love the the cities, the countryside, the art, the museums, the the people, the frozen in time aspects. Um, so, you know, it, in a general way, Spain would be my favorite. And it is my first time in Savannah. Okay. Well, welcome to Savannah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I've known Mindy for a long time. Wow. Okay. And uh, um, after years and years and years of her telling me to come, mm-hmm. I sold my house in Fort Lauderdale, and I now travel full time. So I, I've gone from being a tourism consultant, tourism yeah. pro, to being a full time tourist. Wow. Um, what's something you would want me to see or experience here in Savannah? Mm, I think right off the bat, um, I would point you towards the Pinpoint Museum Heritage Cultural Center, um, which overlooks Moon River. Uh, that's the Gullah Geechee, you know, kind of bedrock cultural historical center in many ways. Um, so, I mean, if we're talking like destination sites, you know, in that sense, for sure. Um, I'm also a big fan of Wormslow Plantation, which is about, you know, it's, it's close to downtown and it's a privately owned place that's part state park and then privately owned, uh, meaning the family has lived there since 1736. But there's a component of it that's been available to the public since like the 1960s. And it has the most beautiful live oak drive in the country, I think. I mean, I've seen a lot of the live oak drives of the South, and I've never seen one like Wormslow. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of what I would call like a, an easy trip, meaning like you can knock it out in an hour or so. You know, there's a museum, an interpretive trail, some ruins of an old house, a waterway with a little cemetery graveyard aspect. Um, but the big house, you know, where the family has lived since 1827 is like their daily home. So it's, you know, for some people it's a little bit of a letdown, but Sherman burned most of the plantations. So, you know, this is one that's still a residence and you don't get to really see it, but it's neat that they share part of the, the grand property with the guests. So I think that's almost like a statement of like Georgia Savannah hospitality in a place. How would you describe the city if you had only one? Mm, one word. Um, haunting. Okay. And the other question I was going to ask is it seems you have an interest in the macabre. Yes, yes, yes. Where did that come from? Uh, well, I've always said that to me, proof of life isn't something that has aged to it. You know, it's evidence of time. It's evidence of aging. Um, I mean, in in high school, quite frankly, I was very drawn to goth music and the new wave of, like, London and England. And so some of my favorite bands were, like, The Cure and, uh, you know, Ministry, Susie and the Banshees, uh, you know, Skinny Puppy. So, I mean, I did a lot of that stuff when I was, you know, younger. And then I, I started to work in a cemetery in high school. So I got acquainted with old headstones, and I was digging graves, and 
um, painting ironwork, and just getting used to like seeing inscriptions and you know being curious about those stories. Um, Not a lot of people get high school jobs in the cemetery. Yeah, it wasn't the mall. No, it was a little tiny farming town with you know some options, and so that was really like the summer job or after school job for a couple of years. If you weren't a tasseling corn or walking beans or painting barns, you know you were maybe working in the local cemetery. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think also when you're an artist, you know, you're always thinking about spirituality and philosophy and life and death and mortality and all the rest. So I figured as a storyteller, I should have some, some of those elements on hand to use as like storytelling devices. So a lot of the stuff in my house, um, you know, I kind of do show and tells with, you know, in, in front of audiences. So, um, you know, it kind of fits the, the business model. And, and again, it's like a, a direct reflection of myself, basically. I see you keep glancing over the masks behind me. Uh, yeah, those are, I mean, those are more odd fellow ritual masks. Two of them are Goliath masks. Um, and they would have been used to reenact biblical scenes in the lodges, which is a lot of the way those men in those lodges got educated about the history of the world uh, by reenacting in play moments, um, scenes of the Bible and other, you know, kind of religious texts. Because, uh, you know, sometimes those men had a craft, but they weren't necessarily school educated to a great degree. And so they learned about the world through reenactment um, using masks, you know, in different cultures, you know, from Indians to uh, African culture or whatever it was. And what's your favorite story to tell about Savannah? Uh, again, um, you know, where, what is the, the favorite book in the library? Um, <laughs> well, I think it, I, I think it goes from, um, it can, it can be from the historical to, to the macabre. So it's, you know, you got a, you got a long gambit there. Um, I think, I think I like to tell the stories that people may have read something about in school to a degree. But then, they're the, like Savannah, like turns that on its head and throws this whole new nuance or dynamic to it. Um, you know, I mean, I think the story that comes to mind that I generally like to surprise people with is the one about Eli Whitney and the cotton gin. You know, like we've all read about Whitney and the cotton gin at some you know grade school level or whatever. But a lot of people don't know that Katie Green, Nathaniel Green's wife, was she not only helped him finish the invention literally but was 50% of its patent owner. And when he died, he spent the rest, or she spent the rest of her life suing, you know, states for patent infringement, never successfully. Uh, but it's, it, that's not really the, the part that I like. It's, it's that when they decided to present the invention to in potential investors here on the Mulberry Grove Plantation on the Savannah River, so this is roughly 1795, 1796, um, they had a big party, and they invited all kinds of town folk and whatnot. And I believe it was it was around seven or eight men who dressed up as women and came to the party. So you could almost say this is like one of the early, you know, kind of drag queen Savannah minutes. And I don't know why they were dressed up as women. That's not exactly defined. But this is just how they are described in the history of this. And I don't know if they looked convincing or they just looked out of <laughs> <laughs> or that was the theme of the party was costume. I have no idea exactly, but um, 
But while they were at the party, they as a group snuck out to the machine shed and stole the invention. And that's and we've all heard about how Eli Whitney got robbed of the invention. And by the time he released his, there were other versions of it out, out there in the world. And that was a part of them losing in the business race. But that's the convenient part they left out of our history books as kids is that these, you know, this group of men, you know, dressed as women, uh, stole the cotton gin. <laughs> it almost seems like a farce from a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it, it might have been a costume party. I, I, I don't know. That part doesn't seem too defined, but that's how it is described by um, the author of the book, Katie Littlefield Green, uh, which is a fantastic book. So that's the stuff that I've enjoyed learning about Savannah that added to something that I thought I knew something about. Um, but obviously there was a whole other dimension to it. And then I love sharing that kind of stuff with visitors, you know, and that's just like on the history end of things. You know, there's plenty of stuff about the macabre and the bizarre and the haunted stuff as well. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about a time when you really second guessed yourself. Wow. I think when you're a small business person in in an industry where you are trying to do something high-minded, where there's a lot of like what I would call mainstream conventionalism that's, you know, easy come, easy go or something, and yet you're trying to like raise the bar there as, a, as an artist, <laughs> that you feel like maybe you're maybe just, you, you bet on the wrong horse. Um, maybe this thing isn't for you. So I think you, I think you face that mirror a lot when you're, you're doing that, this kind of thing in, in Savannah or other places or what have you. Um, but you know, I, I doubted myself a lot because I saw certain moves by the city or the moves by the government that really, I felt undercut the culture and, and undercut small business. And I felt like, wow, you know, here's a group of people doing stuff for this end of the, of the, the field, but not for maybe the, the rest of us who are really trying to, you know, add some neat colors to the canvas. So, you know, they always talk about that five-year mark in business, you know, and man, when you get to the five years, you understand what that means because in that five years, if you've been giving your earnest go, you know, you've dealt with all the the financial ups and downs, you know, or many of them, the fundamental ones, I guess, you've dealt with the political stuff, you've dealt with, you know, the bureaucrats, the government, you know, all that stuff that just piles on in the first five years and you're just like, okay, you know. But once you get to that five-year mark, you know, you, you feel a little more confident about what you've achieved, hopefully. But um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, second-guessing or, or doubt, but, you know, I almost feel like in a weird way, Savannah caught up to me. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like very, that sounds very, you know, egotistical, but I feel like I was, I was pioneering some things in Savannah that the marketplace wasn't ready for. You know, it was like, they were great, but it was like the marketplace wasn't there. And that's real. You know, that just happens. But if you hang out long enough and the place is shaping and growing and, and Savannah certainly has leaps and bounds as I started. You know, eventually it's almost like the place will catch up to your vibe and then your vibe is like, you know, paying you back. So what are a couple of things that you saw an opportunity, <clears throat> saw a vacancy in the marketplace here mm -hmm. um, that you were able to take advantage of? Sure. Um, I think probably 
the one thing that happened early in was that, I mean, on on a two kind of a twofold level, there was a particular neighborhood below Liberty Street in Savannah that had lots of good ghost stories and weird stories, but nobody was telling them. So I decided to go do that. No one had ever done that. So I brought this whole other, you know, tourism shift to downtown Savannah. And then because I worked in some ghost television with like investigations and things like that, I decided we needed a major ghost hunting event in an old building. And that became uh, Haunted Oatland Island on uh, Oatland Island, Savannah, which is the wildlife center here now. But the old educational buildings really spooky, a lot of history there. And that was great for a couple years. And then they, they, they decided to do some other things as an institution. But, um, but that was a fun, fun event. So we put that whole ghost gadget thing in people's hands and got that whole thing whirring and going in Savannah before that was like um, just a conventional kind of tour. Now it's almost like everybody does that or something, but um, that was sort of the heyday in uh, around 2007 with Haunted Oakland Island. And then nobody was touring Bonaventure Cemetery when I started. Hmm. So like what happened for me was in, I started a company, a ghost tour company in 2002, but I wanted to do history. Um, and I noticed that nobody owned BonaventureCemetery.com, which I thought was highly unusual, um, especially because of Midnight in the Garden of Good Evil. So I secured it for like 14 bucks or whatever it was. And, and then I started going out there at people's, you know, calls and I would do maybe one or two tours a week, you know, like there wasn't a whole like slew of people going to Bonaventure in that way. Um, and then like 10 years later, it was just through the roof, you know, like. I think Bonaventure, on a on a visitorship level, they estimate is about eight hundred thousand to a million a year now, you know, which is crazy. Um, but when I was first out there, you know, nobody else was doing the day tours out there. And now now you got golf cart tours out there, you got segways, you got it all out there, you know. How do you feel about about the market catching up about? You know, seeing others <clears throat> using that same model or, or trying sure. to mimic your success. Um, I will tell you that you know there's some. I, I, I'm a, I'm at, at heart, you know, I'm a I'm a laissez-faire capitalist. You know, um, I believe in that system, and it's, and I've been a great beneficiary of the American dream, and 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 a, by definition of Savannah, you know, I could get a business license for eighty-eight bucks and start my dream, you know, and I did that. Um, now I realize that uh, with growth, you know, there comes some mm, cultural downside. And I, would, and, and I hate to be a, a voice about this, but I think it's, it's reasonable. I think at some point, I don't know if they need to put an absolute moratorium on, you know, like tour companies or something like that. I mean, that's, that's always kind of dangerous talk, but, um, I've seen where that could be an argument that is worthwhile. Like, you know, what, what is that number? I mean, I don't want to be the guy to necessarily dictate that, but I think, you know, there's a little bit of a wild west thing that goes on and it doesn't maybe make the rest of us look as classy or whatever it is. So that's, that's one of the growth problems, I guess, of Savannah. And it's a small city, right? It's not like maybe in New York or whatever, where I'm sure they have their own issues like that too. But, um, Savannah is just a smaller city. Um, I mean, but at the same time, you know, I believe there's, there's room for more. So I'm not sure what the, 
the balance is there. But, you know, I've seen a lot of people sort of uh, go copycat and, um, but, you know, they, they kind of go out of bounds a little bit. And it, it gets a little frictious sometimes within the, the industry, within the communities, and um, especially like, let's say, in, in the cemetery where it's even smaller than the city. Um, you probably just don't want like 50 companies working, you know, every day or something. But I'm no expert on that. So, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying that's what I've observed, you know, so. The last two years have been challenging for just about everybody in tourism mm -hmm. and everybody in travel. Mm -hmm. um, what has been the silver lining for you? Um, personally, and I speak to this only personally, is that before 2020 went down, I was already having been so established here building more private tours uh, for myself um, so that I could explore more subject matter, you know, by vehicle doing smaller group private tours. So it was already in the arc in that direction. And I was, that was like the most exciting part of my business. It still is. But 2020 really um, brought that, I, I suppose in the rebound idea of 2020, it's brought more of that into fruition. So, if anything, when tourism started to come back a little bit here in the summer of 2020, greatly in the fall, um, you know, my private tour stuff is really like off the charts, you know, so I'm, I'm in demand a great deal with the private tours. It's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm torn because I like doing the public tours in the cemetery, but people want to hire me and, and do the low country experience or the city experience or whatever it is. Um, but that's the stuff that I really enjoy. How hard is it for you to hear another tour guide give out wrong information? Um, I mean, it's not the most painful thing. I think the most painful thing for me is maybe the performance aspect. Uh, <laughs> like, if they're just not that interesting of a storyteller, uh, that, that bums me out most of all. Um, I can live with some of the other stuff. Um, that's always a, that's always like a debate going on in Savannah and the industry, you know, like who's really telling it right. I mean, I will tell you that the ghost stories that I used to, to know and tell like 25 years ago, they have now taken on a whole nother life. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's like a, it's an amalgamation ver version of things. that's just distorted and weird. And I'm like, okay, I guess. Um, yeah, I think it's more of the quality of the experience. Uh, I mean, you know, truly, I and I've talked about this with other industry people for a long time. I really think there needs to someone needs to start in a town which has a lot of focus on hospitality. They need to start a storyteller college or a, a tour guide college. Um, something that's like I think it's the Vocare in you know New Orleans. Where, which I don't even think is probably up to, to snuff as, as much as it used to be, but it used to be a big deal if you had, like, the stamp of the vote care. I mean, I really think Savannah has to have something like that. I mean, we've got the Savannah College of Art and Design. We've got these Votech schools. We've got some top-shelf things here. So I'm not saying I'm the person to lead that cause, but I really think if we had a training school that taught, like, tour guides and storytellers, that could be so cool. You know, I'm just talking blue sky stuff here, but... You're also talking to the Tourism Academy, and that's the stuff that we do. The Tourism Academy, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know... It's the I, stuff that we do, is working yeah, with destinations to do that. 
I mean, I think it's I think it's perfect. I think it's what should be in place. Uh, the same going for the concierge. Uh, I still bemoan this. You know, we're kind of talking history here, but I think it was in the 1990s. Um, a certain hotel in Savannah sold for 110 million dollars, which was a lot of money for a hotel in the 90s. It's a big hotel, it's still downtown, and the first job they cut out of it was a $35,000 a year concierge position. The new owners just cut it out. And what they did, and you know, no disrespect to you know the people who, who have the advantage of this, but they sold the lobby to you know a trolley company. And I thought, okay, well that's you know that's business. But I sort of felt snooty, snobbish, whatever about this idea that these hotels that had the power and the money and the ability should have a concierge that's dedicated to the guests. Yeah, that was really just there and they were dynamic and they, you know, everybody knew them by name and they, you know, they made a good living doing that. Now, we'll say in the 90s and the early 2000s, I'm not sure structurally, financially, a lot of the hotels could have done that in Savannah. And I'm not saying I know what their lives are, you know, now, but I would say Savannah is more right for that kind of thing. And there are a few really strong concierges that are around Savannah now that have been around for a long time. And they bring to their concierge desk that kind of thing. Even if they do, you know, at times work for a trolley company, uh, they've actually kind of upped the game even there. So I would like to see more of that kind of academy, you know, training to have these dedicated people that can make a living doing that, that makes them want to stay. How many people work with you? Uh, I've got really four, I've got four tour guides. Okay. Yeah. What is your least favorite part of your work? <clears throat> I mean, as a small business person, the least favorite part of my my work is probably scheduling tour guides. <laughs> uh, I often define it as the, um, the other island of misfit toys. You know, it's... Uh, it's 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 great to have eclectic personalities on deck. Um, they all bring something to the table that's original, but it's difficult to keep um, those people in a stable and to offer them something that keeps them incentivized. Uh, if just because you know we're in the tour game and it, it sort of is what it is. I mean, you know, I would like to think I can make my storytellers a living, but um, I don't know if that's you know the industry or not. So that's, you know, I like, I can, I can rely on myself and do what I do well. It's just, it's hard to um, just keep that, that level with every tour guide every time. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'll be the person that expands into 50 tour guides. Like, I just, I don't want to do that. I like a small stable. What's a story of yours that you have heard retold in a way that, it has morphed from your first telling them. <laughs> I, well, I'll put it to you this way, and I'll, I'll keep it on the short <laughs> because we could get into like libel. Um, <laughs> but years ago, um, I entrusted some photographs that were copyrighted because I took them to a storyteller to use in their storytelling capacity. Uh, they were ceremoniously something like that fired and they ran off and you know they supposedly returned those those items that were 
intellectual property. Well, through some videos I'd seen of them working for another tour company, they were using those my intellectual property in their stories about my stories. And that was really a foul to me. Like it's it's one thing if you if you borrow the story, you take whatever you know you learn from another person or whatever and you go do it on your own and make money, it's fine. I get it, that's the nature of the beast. But you know, to see them using like my intellectual property, that really pissed me off. <laughs> and because if anything, I plan to use it in a book. And so now I've heard other storytellers, which I have respect for, because they just don't know. They, they've come up in different companies. And they tell that story uh, not realizing that, you know, a part of the story they're telling is is using my intellectual property. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm fine with it at this point. I've kind of let some of that go. But, I mean, that's one of the uh, incidents where I was just really, I felt a little looted, you know, or something if someone were to tell a story about you, yeah, how would you want that story to to sound? Mm, you mean as far as like a professional or just a, a human being? As somebody who knows you well, telling me about you. Uh, I would I would like to hope that that story would be that um, I introduce them to like a wider uh, field of understanding about a certain subject that they had already been interested in. And I was the guy that just like opened up a whole other dimension of that understanding. I feel like that's what I do in my own capacity. So I do a lot of research on the subjects that I, I talk about and I try to bring out of the box stuff to the table. So I would like to think that they would say that about me at the very least. You mentioned that part of your, <clears throat> two things that you mentioned. One is yep. loving to learn, mm -hmm. and two is loving to share what you've learned. Mm -hmm. um, where does that come from? You know, who was, who was a great inspirational teacher or somebody who taught you to love learning? Well, I had two teacher parents, I mean, they're still my parents, uh, very much alive, retired teachers. Um, that's them in the picture over there? Yeah, that's it, mom and dad. But they were very, my mom in particular was very, um, she exposed me to a lot of things around the arts. And her mother, uh, Agnes, uh, was when you were Coco. Coco was my grandmother, taught me how to draw, and was also just very warm around the subject of learning. So early in, those were the influences. But I had a couple strong art teachers along the way, and um, and some other just you know passionate English teachers. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's you know different figures. I would like to say that Paul Blattner, that founded the Savannah History Museum, he's now buried in Bonaventure, but he was a role model, a mentor to me, and he he got me in, in more, uh, I guess, infected by Savannah. Uh, he was a Savannah native and just a, a great collector. In fact, some of the things in this room uh, were in Paul's collection at one time. Nice. Um, would you mind picking a couple items and, and telling me about them? Sure. Um, I mean, it's tough to choose, huh? It is tough to choose. Um, it's There's a lot in the room to talk about. Um, I just now noticed the headstones. <laughs> 
Yeah, those and are pieces of headstones. Yeah, those are two Civil War headstones, and they came from uh, Paul Blattner's collection. They're Civil War, and effectively, they're there were three generations of those that were put into the cemetery. Like they kept replacing them and then the old ones got discarded. And so that's, you know, essentially what the headstones are. Um, this portrait's interesting. Um, it's 1926 and it, it is the, a portrait that was painted by Mary Hoover Augusta, who was Conrad Aiken's wife, Conrad Aiken, the poet's buried in Bonaventure. Uh, as is his wife, Mary Hoover. And it says it's a portrait of a socialite from New York City, 1926. I think it's actually a self-portrait, but I haven't confirmed that. But it is signed by Mary Hoover Augusta. Um, but I think it could be a portrait of her when she and Conrad more or less first met. Um, but they're both buried out there under the famous martini drinking bench in uh, Bonaventure. So I've got a couple of her paintings in my collection. Um, now this is, this is also very notable. This is kind of what I call uh, the story shaman altar. Um, different objects up here have different stories, but really notable is the portrait of one of the DeVoe women here, which is, uh, you find it spelled differently, but D-E-V-O-E. And they were... One of Savannah's, if not the Low Country's most notable, like root lady families or root doctor families. So a lot of a lot of history of magic and conjuring, you know, in their family past. Um, but that actually hung in one of their family homes, eighteen uh, seventies, which you know, as a portrait, speaks to the fact that they had money um, and a lot of influence. Probably you know much more than I even understand at this point, but. Um, but yeah, that came to me, uh, through a, through a friend and, you know, I, I, I use it a lot to talk about the Gelagichi people. Mm -hmm. So, and some of the other objects are kind of just tied to that, you know, kind of post-African tradition in America stuff. Tell me about the Gelagichi people. Well, I mean, in short, they're the direct descendants of the Angolan slaves that came here in the 1750s. Um, you know, they brought with them you know, obviously lots of African traditions. Uh, you know, now this is just my understanding of it, but in Angola, um, they call themselves Gola, and there were two tribes. One was dark-complected, one was light-complected. Um, but as they defined their culture here originally, if you live north of the Savannah River on a plantation, you were Gullah. And if you live south but down into the uh, Ogeechee River Basin of Florida, you were Geechee. Um, now it's just, you know, you can kind of call the whole culture Gullah Geechee if you'd want. But um, anyway, uh, the language they speak, which is indigenous to the United States, you know, some say they, they created in the plantation system to, like, survive the system. So it's a mixture of European, Nigerian, you know, there's some little bit of Gaelic in the language sometimes. And, you you know, if you, if you spend enough time around the low country, you run into people like older people that speak it. And it's really interesting sometimes when you'll see an older Gullah person talking to a younger one, because like the older person will speak the language to them and they clearly understand it as a younger person, but they don't speak it back, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think of those like being responsible for soul food and, 
you know, just a lot of the arts and crafts and, you know, other herbalist traditions that are around the low country. Um, but a lot of music, you know, great music. Um, and there are a few institutions like the, uh, uh, the Penn Center in South Carolina, you know, on St. Helena's Island. Um, you've got Pinpoint, the museum here in Savannah. You've got Geechee Kunda in Riceboro, Georgia, which is another spiritual center um, for the Gullah Geechee. And so neat little places like that. Um, Hog Hammock on Sapelo Island, uh, you know, Defusky Island, South Carolina. So those are some of the more significant, notable communities. But I just, I just, you know, I've always been drawn to their stories and their history and some of their traditions. What's something you're curious to learn more about now? <laughs> um, what I call the forbidden archaeology of Georgia. Um, the whole, like, it's a Mayan connection to Georgia and those pre-European minutes, although even that's starting to get turned over a little bit, like some of the European DNA, you know, is showing us that, you know, that some of the Indians may have gone over to Europe a long time ago, came back. There was all this traffic going across, you know, the ocean with like the Vikings and, you know, um, down to the Americas. And it's, there's a lot of that, his, like, um, like uh, religious sites that you find in Georgia connected to that stuff. Um, you know, now we know that like the blue paint that they were using in their artwork in the Americas ties back to Georgia. Like, you know, you don't find the indigo growing anywhere else in the world, you know? So all that stuff is, you know, breaking some mainstream molds. And then it also ties in to Oglethorpe who founded Georgia, the interest that the Freemasons had, in what I call advanced knowledge of the Americas. Um, you know, they wanted to know as much as possible about all this ancient stuff. And so I think, you know, culturally we're waking up to a lot more um, that predates Columbus, basically. You know, predates the, who we conventionally think of as the early explorers. You know, there were earlier explorers, and I think groups like the Freemasons had some of that knowledge that they kept to themselves that is now, you know, permeating our understanding of things. Um, and it's just, you know, connecting the dots with, through the ancient cultures to how Georgia became Georgia. So I like all that forbidden archaeology, you know, that's taboo. And, you know, the academics get, you know, uh, upset when you talk about it. Or whatever. <laughs> and you've mentioned yeah. a couple times ghosts and, and spirits. And how would you describe your own your own beliefs in paranormal or, or how would, how would you describe it? Well, I don't like to give it anything that is of that supernatural idea. Even though I use the terms like that. So it's an understood thing. I, I think that all the spiritual realm that we describe is really within this world. It's just how we see it or don't see it, you know, but it's still there operating. So I don't think it's really outside of the, you know, the known world. Uh, it's just all here operating all the time. Um, I mean, I've had experiences with it that I never expected to have. And any human being that was in my shoes at the time that it happened, no matter what their background would be, uh, 
they would be totally floored by the experience. And sometimes in the company of other people, you know, seeing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what that all tallies out to be or what that is, you know, I think that's what keeps everybody interested in, you know, exploring it. Um, but I mean, I never moved to Savannah thinking that I would be a believer. I mean, I was really, you know, I'd been, I'd been raised in a church, you know, as I was a religious person, but I was basically the classic, you know, Ayn Rand college kid that thought atheism was really the cool thing. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm an, I'm an atheist now. And, but, you know, uh, I was never that close minded or that completely narrow in my want to know about the world. So spirituality always played a role, especially when you study a culture that's full of it. But then when I had my own experiences, um, it was like, okay, well, that's a part of reality too. You know, it's, so it didn't really necessarily offend my atheism at the time, I guess. But uh, it made me realize that atheism as an attitude was maybe only one part of the pie, you know. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a believer in what I would call psychical operations. Tell me about one of those experiences that made you believe. Sure. Um, well, in 2004... Um, at 120 East Jones Street on the third floor of the house, which was built in 1852. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, she and I were in the same room of about this size. And she was on one side of the wall. I was sitting in the chair on the other side of the wall. And we were just kind of talking, you know, like two people do, and we we're laughing about something. And as we were laughing, we both started turning and noticing the same thing. And essentially near the the uh, ceiling, a cloud started coming out of the wall near the ceiling. Now, you know, these walls are two feet thick, you know, brick and all that. And we're just watching this torpedo-shaped cloud just now moving through the room. It had what I would call a little bit of a personality. There was something, there was a character to it, uh, an energy to it. It wasn't just mist. And (laughs) I'll never forget it. She put her hand out and she said, look, friends, And whatever that was about her saying that, it turned and started coming down under the ceiling fan in her direction. Like it was intrigued with her. And so as I'm watching this with my jaw hanging open, basically, um, suddenly about four feet from her hand, off to the left, in where the walls basically meet the roof in the corner there, the ceiling, this portal opened up in the corner like maybe half dollar size. It just opened. And this cloud turned and it banked a hard right, like it was being sucked out of the room with a straw. And as it went through the portal, it narrowed like a gas. You could see it getting denser. But as it went through the portal, it made this noise. And then it went completely through. The portal just closed and vanished. Wow. <laughs> it was like, wow. You know, and so, you know, you can't deny the fact that that actually happened. And, you know, when you give ghost tours or whatever and you talk about that stuff all the time, it doesn't mean you're experiencing it every day. But suddenly there was a reminder that this is why Savannah is Savannah. This stuff goes on and, you know, I too have now bore witness. <laughs> you know? So that was pretty intense. 
and to have like a collaborator who also saw it helps. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. If folks um, want to learn more about your product or taking one of your sure. tours, how would they do that? Just go to shannonscott.com, uh, or if it's easier, bonaventurecemetery.com. Okay. Yeah. And usually I wrap up with a random card from a conversation deck that I left them outside. Okay. Um, one of the cards, one of my favorites is, what is, name a magical moment that's happened to you in the last year. Magical moment of last year. Hmm. I would have to say, I mean, this sounds, you know, cliche, but I think a lot of people relate to it. Um, I got to see my parents and my brother for the first time in over two years. So, you know, that was pretty special and magical. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks a lot, Steve. Steve, thank you. Here in your home. Thanks uh, a lot, yeah. I'll turn this off. Executive producer and show host, Stephen Ekstrom. Stephen Gross, producer. Sheena Works, chief learning officer. Eric Ludi, development. Keith Snowd, advisor. Sifa Mumbabu, intern. Esther Hengonzi, intern. Special thanks to Shannon Scott, Mindy Shea Fraser, and Joe Marinell from Visit Savannah. Thank you.